0: Welcome to today's audio podcast, a sermon teaching from Grace Bible Church of Akron. If you enjoy the teaching ministry of GBC and would like to enjoy more resources and weekly updates, we hope you will visit our website at gbcakron.org. Please take a moment to let us know how this ministry is impacting your life by emailing us at info at gbcakron.org. That's I-N-F-O at gbcakron.org. Also, if you would like to support Grace Bible Church, you may do so by visiting gbcakron.org forward slash giving. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. I need to start this morning by pointing out that on your handout there is a posty note. You are going to want to hang on to that posty note. Um, we're going to end the service using that if you're here in person. Um, But we are kicking off a new sermon series, and every single year at Grace, we spend at least one sermon series covering what we call at Grace our path of discipleship. Um, And if you partnered with us here at Grace, if you are a partner of Grace, more than likely you have walked through an explanation of the path of discipleship, which for us is in the acronym grace g-r-a-c-e so g being glorify god r being relate to one another in a small group a being applying biblical truth c being cultivating a ministry and then e being expanding the kingdom so for the next several weeks we're going to be talking about a that is applying biblical truth from paper to practice But I want to start this morning just by sharing uh, something that happens in my household. So I am a horrible gift giver. Um, I do not, when it comes time for Christmas, I, I enter into a season of trauma because I am required to purchase gifts for people that I love and specifically one of the people that I like to buy gifts for is my wife, but I'm not good at it. And as a result, a lot of times what happens is I think in my mind, this is a great gift that I'll buy my wife and I buy it for her. And then because she's loving and caring and kind, she expresses gratitude and thanksgiving to me for this gift. But then generally those gifts that I purchase her end up on a shelf somewhere in the house or in the basement or on a trip to Goodwill or in a garage sale. So... And and again, I'm not even, uh, don't even get frustrated about it because in honesty, the gifts I buy are sometimes, I'm like, this would be cool, and then it's not, and then I see the reality that it's not cool, and so when she shelves them, I'm not all that upset. But I want you to imagine just for a minute that some of the gifts that I got her were great gifts, right? They were useful gifts, and that she still decided to shelve them. That would be a little bit frustrating. An example I could think of is um, we're fortunate. We've had the same washing machine since the day we were married. And even before that, I had the same washing machine. So it's a good washing machine. It's never broken. Um, So it's over 10 years now. It'll be 10 years this June. And I want you to imagine, though, that one day it finally bites the dust. And I go out and I buy her one of those fancy, you know, LG... Uh, washing machines that you can like press a button in and it somehow dries it too. I don't know if they exist, but if it doesn't, build it. Okay. But I buy her one of those, and then I come home one evening, and she's she is in the canal in Canal Fulton, and she's got one of those wooden washboards and a bar soap, and she's washing, she's washing our clothes, which that would never happen. Um, but I want you to imagine that it did. That would be incredibly frustrating because I have given her a gift that was intended for that same thing. It would have been much easier for her just to throw it in the awesome LG that does everything, even shoots the detergent in for her, right? I can't help but think that at times God maybe gets frustrated with us because here's the thing about God. He's not a bad gift giver. He's a great gift giver. And he gives us incredible gifts, and I think that we are guilty as followers of Christ of shelving those gifts and not using them for their intended purpose. See, I know that I'm guilty of this. There are times in my life where I shelve the Holy Spirit. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. Ephesians 4.30 says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, every single time that I ignore the conviction of the Spirit in my life when I am tempted to sin and I say, thanks for warning me, but I'm going to go ahead and proceed anyway and choose sin over you, I shelve in that moment the Holy Spirit. Every time that I enter into one of life's difficulties, extreme challenges, and I begin, you know, spinning my wheels and trying to figure out solutions to my problem, but I rely on my strength and not on the Spirit of God to guide me and to lead me, in those moments, I shelve the Holy Spirit. But see, there are also times that I shelve God's holy word his holy word and really there are two ways that we as christians can shelve god's holy word the first is this we simply don't open it right it literally sits on a shelf and collects dust and i know that all of us at times in our life are probably guilty of this where we do not lend our ear to hear from god Right? We don't make any commitments to open this up. Not just alone for devotions, but to open it up with other believers and try to, to, to allow God's word to speak into our lives. There are times where we have this thing closed and we don't pay attention. And every time we do that, we are shelving God's word. But see, there's another way that we can shelve God's word. And it's simply this. When we don't apply God's word, or in other words, when we don't take what we see on paper and put it into practice, when we fail to apply God's word, we shelve it. See, here's the thing. We can admire the Bible, right? We can, inlear, we can enjoy learning from it. We can do extensive studies, historical background. We can dig through theology books, commentaries, if you're into that sort of thing. We can listen to loads of sermons on our iPod thing or whatever the case may be. We can, we can take in all sorts of information from God's word. But if we never allow it to transform the way we live, then we in that way are shelving god's word we're not using it for our intended purpose pastor Carey often says this he says when you just consume god's word but never do anything it's like you are a hog he calls it hog theology you just eat 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 and don't do anything we are in danger of doing that and in that way we shelve god's word And that's why over the next few weeks, we're going to be focusing on on moving from paper to practice. To not just allow this to speak into our lives, but allow it to transform our lives. And there's a a few important initial steps that we have to do in moving from paper to practice. The first is we have to unwrap the gifts inside of this gift. See, here's the thing. I think most of us would agree that God's word is a gift. Like, I view this as a gift from God. God gave God's word to us, the Bible, as a gift. But what's cool about this gift is that inside of this gift, there are other gifts, right? So that's why I say you have to unwrap the gifts inside the gift, so when I was growing up, around Christmas time, my mom, she liked to play this game with us as kids called Pass the Parcel. So basically, this is kind of the way it works. There's some large, large gift in the inside. She wraps it. And then she puts other gifts, kind of like in layers, and she wraps those, right? So there's a gift, then, a, then wrapping paper, then another gift, wrapping. And she, she wraps this big thing, and then she plays music for us, and we are to pass this gift around kind of like hot potato, and when the music stops, if it stops on you, she's blindfolded, she can't see, she presses pause, right back in the day, it was on the cassette tape, you know. know. She presses pause, we wrap open, or we unwrap the gift, there's a gift in there, and you're like, wow, what an awesome gift. But then, there's more gifts inside the gift. That is what God's word is like. When we open it, it itself is a gift to us, but when we open it, we discover and come to realize there are more gifts that God is trying to give to us in this gift. So we've got to unwrap the gifts inside of God's word. But then we can't stop there. Then we have to use those gifts for their intended purpose. We have to use those gifts for their intended purpose. And this morning we're going to focus on one of the many gifts that God, God's word contains. And my hope is that we will unwrap it and say, wow, that's an amazing gift that God has given us. But then we will take that gift and realize its intended purpose and then try to use it for that intended purpose. And the gift that we're going to focus on this morning is the gift of salvation the gift of salvation. Jesus said this in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. Now, in context, this, these words Jesus was using wasn't a rebuke against some very religious people who, who were so legalistic about God's word that they thought their salvation was wrapped up in rightly observing it. But Jesus, he doesn't discredit the fact that God's salvation, the gift of salvation is wrapped up inside of his word because he goes on to say, it is the scriptures that bear witness to me. And if you come to me in faith, believe in my death on the cross, believe in my resurrection, then you will be saved. You will receive the gift of salvation. But how do we learn about the gift of salvation? We learn about it because it is wrapped up inside of this gift. Right? And so in God's word, we find the gift of salvation. But again, once we unwrap the gift, we have to figure out what its intended purpose is for. And I'm going to argue this morning that the purpose, or at least the ultimate purpose, for salvation is actually character development. It's character development. Now that's not like, not all of what salvation entails, but a big, large part of it is. Because here's the thing, I think there's a danger of us treating salvation like this. We think of salvation as a gift, and we think the point of that gift is forgiveness and a pass into heaven. I hear people talk about it all the time. God wants to forgive you, and he wants to allow you to have, it's not free, it's free for you, a free pass into heaven. It was costly for God, but it was free for you, and and so you can get into heaven. And here's the thing. Really, in Scripture, we don't really see that. Yes, there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Yes, he does allow us to be in his presence when we die because we've been forgiven of our sins. But that is just the beginning of salvation. It's not the end. See, the ultimate purpose of salvation, I believe, is for God to restore the broken image of god that is in us i mean if you actually read the bible cover to cover in the first three chapters you see god create these people adam and eve who were made in his image and his likeness and then moments later they rebel against god and in that moment the image of god that they are, they're they're supposed to be imitations they're supposed to be mirrors that shine the glory of god in that moment those mirrors are cracked And then the rest of the Bible, if you're reading it from cover to cover, is a story of how God works inside of humanity and in the world to restore that broken image back to where it should be. So that's why I say that I believe salvation's ultimate intended purpose is character development. You can see this in Scripture. Look at Romans 8.30. Right Here we see a string of very theological words all pieced together. I don't have time to explain all of them, but it says this. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. That word justified is, is oftentimes what we use, or when we say salvation, a lot of times we mean justified, because that word justified means that God declares you righteous even though you're a sinner. And how can he do that? because of Christ's righteousness. Christ lived a perfect life. Christ died and took upon the punishment of your sin. And so therefore, God can stamp you and say, you are justified, you are declared righteous because of the finished and complete work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. But notice, it doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, those he justified... He also glorified. And glorification is a a theological word to refer to the finished product of God's work in your life, in my life, in our lives. See, I believe this with all my heart. From the moment you trust in Jesus for the gift of salvation, God begins this journey of repairing the brokenness that is in you of weeding out the worldliness, getting rid of sinfulness, and bringing you to a place where you look more and more and more like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says it this way, and all of us with an unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. Notice what it says after that. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit of God. In other words, the Spirit of God is at work in you right now. As you're sitting here this morning, as you spend your week at work or wherever you are at, the Spirit of God is at work in you right now to allow you the opportunity to behold the glory of God and to be transformed ever so slightly to be more and more and more and more like Jesus. That is what God is doing in us. I love this verse, 1 John 3, 2. I believe this is like a snapshot of the moment we are completely and totally transformed. It says this, beloved, we are God's children now and what we, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now again, I'm, not, I'm gonna give you like the reader's digest version of what i believe happens when we see jesus okay there is no theological it sounds crazy to say this but there's no theological basis for this this is just a guess and and honestly heaven in a lot of ways is a guess for us we don't know what it's like we're going to see when we get there we have information about it but we don't know all the details but here's what i believe probably will happen God exists outside of time. So if I were to die right now and I were to go to heaven, I believe this would be what would transpire. A lot of people think they'll see their family. I don't think that's the first person I want to see. I don't know about you. I love my family, but that's not the first person I want to see. First person I want to see is Jesus. That's the first person I want to see. And I believe that because God lives outside of time, the transaction might look something like this. I enter into the gates... And I gaze upon the face of Jesus Christ, and I instantly fall flat on my face because I cannot behold his glory, and I simply lay there for a thousand years worshiping him. Right, we'll have plenty of time to do that, by the way. God lives outside of time. And in that thousand years that I'm at Jesus' feet worshiping him and beholding his glory, then the that the Spirit of God was trying to, well, would say trying, He was progressively accomplishing in my life here will be completed when I see Jesus in His glory. Amen. And here's the thing, even though we have the assurance in the Scripture that this is going to happen, Philippians 1.6 says that He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. When, when we see Christ Jesus, even though we have that assurance, we still have the obligation, the responsibility, and we have the Spirit working in us to transform us into his image in the here and now. Character development. right? And when we, when we don't try that, when we don't do that, when we don't seek to be developed in our character then in that moment we shelve God's gift of salvation. And I believe that frustrates God. So we've got to ask the question, how do we develop Christ-like character? How do we develop Christ-like character and use God's gift for its intended purpose? Well, to answer that question, we have to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. And I'm going to read that. You can read along with me. It says this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and in holiness. So in order to develop Christ-like character, the first thing we have to do is we have to bury what has died. We have to bury what has died. If you look again at verse 22, it says we need to put off our old self. Another place in Scripture that I think this is made a little bit clearer is Romans 6, chapter six, chapter 6, verse 6. It says this, For we know that our old self, right, same phrase, old self, was crucified with Christ, So that the body that is ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. I love that. When you trust in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross is the death of your sin-ruled life. The life that you lived that was dominated, that you were enslaved to sin, when you trust in Christ on the cross, that sinful lifestyle, that sinful, like bound by chains lifestyle, was nailed to the cross with Christ. And it died there. And when Christ was put in the tomb, it was buried there. But here in the, in the present, the right now, the here and now, the Bible is reminding us, listen, because that old lifestyle is dead, bury it and leave it buried. Bury it and leave it buried. See, before you trusted in Christ, you were a slave to sin. That is to say, all you could do is rebel against God. Don't misunderstand me here. Notice I did not say you were a slave to sinful habits. I just, because here's the thing, people can break habits for all sorts of reasons, right? You can meet a person that's unbeliever will say, well, listen, look, they struggled with overeating or they struggled with pornography and they got off of it without Christ. Great, they changed their habits, but guess what? They're still a slave to sin. So don't misunderstand me here. When we are set free from sin, We're not set free from habits. We're set free from the system that dominates us. But here's the thing. The old way of life, if we understand it correctly, is dead and we are expected to bury it. And that should be good news for us because what that means is, since we're no longer slaves to sin, that means we are fully empowered to change our habits to change the way we live and to become more like Christ. Right? If you walked in here, if you have a habit of greed, God has given you victory over that. If you've walked in here and you have a habit of lust, God has given you the ability to have victory over that. If you walked in here this morning and you deal with selfishness, God has given you the ability to overcome that. If you deal with anger, God has given you the power. You're no longer dominated by that. Gluttony, God has given you the power to break free from those chains because you're no longer dominated by that. And here's the thing. You've got to think about this for a minute. That sin that keeps tripping you up over and over and over again, it has no real power over you. No real power. The only power it has is the power that you give to it in your mind. That's the only power it has. The power you give to it in your mind. Because you're no longer a slave to sin. See, I think it's really tactful that Paul uses the word deceitful desires. Because here's what I believe happens. Those temptations, those sins, they deceive you into thinking Because the temptation comes on so strong, it's so hard to resist the urge to sin, especially, as Hebrews says, those sins that easily entangle you, right? You know what they are. I don't have to tell you what sin it is for yourself. You know what sin you deal with constantly. And those things that so easily entangle you, it almost, they whisper lies to you saying, you're still bound, You're still chained. You still belong to me. You can't resist. You can't beat this temptation. You can't overcome these desires. But that's false power because those chains are broken. You know, elephants in their natural habitat, if you were to go out into the wild and find an elephant and you were going to take a chain and chain its leg and then stake that thing into the ground, that elephant is going to break free without a problem. Absolutely no problem. They are not bound by your silly chain. They will break it. But here's the thing. A circus elephant, it never can escape when it's chained. The reason is is because it believes in false limitations. You see, they take circus elephants from the time they're babies and they're barely able to walk, right? They tumble over and fall over the place. They chain those baby elephants so that when those elephants are full-grown, Circus elephants can have a chain and then be staked to the ground. And what they don't realize is they have every bit of power to break free. But they believe, there's, they, they, are, they are deceived by their false limitations. Christians, we do this. right? We do this. When we, when we fall into temptation, I think, I think we are very much convinced. It's like, well, you know what, I'm, I'm just bound to struggle with this the rest of my life. I'll never experience true freedom from this. I can't overcome this habit. I can't overcome these sinful desires. And that is not true. You can break away. You can, by the power of God that is invested in you, the Holy Spirit that resides inside you, you do not have to be like a circus elephant that is chained by false limitations. You have freedom in Christ. And see, that's why I believe that we need, as followers of God, to have the deceitful limitations removed from our mind, which leads to the second point. We've got to allow God's Spirit to renew our minds. We've got to allow God's Spirit to renew our minds. Notice again in verse 23, it says, we need to be made new in the attitudes of our minds. I love this. Notice this. It does not say we need to change our minds. How many of you have tried that before? I'm going to stop this today. My strength. I'm just going to form a new habit all in myself. No, that doesn't work. You've got to have God's spirit change your mind. Right. So it says we need to be made new in the attitudes of our mind. Who changes our mind? The Spirit of God. Again, looking at 2 Corinthians 3.18, a verse we read earlier, it says, again, we with unveiled faces beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Where does it come from? This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Only the Spirit can bring transformation to our minds and here's the thing i've learned in my journey of following jesus the spirit is constantly doing this i'm not a finished product i'm far far away but the spirit is constantly transforming my mind and i believe that if you're a follower of christ you know that too you know that and so there's many many different ways the spirit renews our thinking but i want to share with you two they're not in your notes they're free but they relate to today in dealing with this thing of sin and character development I think one of the ways that God's Spirit brings transformation to our mind as we behold His glory is the Spirit of God gets rid of our foolish thinking in two ways, right? The first thing He does is He reveals how foolish it is for us to dig up the dead. To dig up the dead. So earlier this week, I learned that Pastor Jason... I know if you go to his house today, you will not find a pet there. Well, maybe they have a bunny now. I think they have a bunny. I don't know. He can speak to you about it. But they usually don't have pets, okay? But when Jason was a child, he had a pet duck that he called Whistles. And the reason he called him Whistles is because he couldn't quack. He just whistled. And so Jason, Jason loved this duck that he called Whistles, and he loved him a lot. But one day, and Jason, Jason told me, he was being transparent, he said he cried Because whistles died, all right, like at some point most pets do. And I don't mean, I'm not poking at that, because I I lost a pet of uh, about seven years recently. It was hard. It was really hard. And so Jason lost whistles. But I want you to imagine that Jason took whistles, backyard, held a funeral service, buried whistles in the backyard, covered up, tombstone, right, kind of makeshift tombstone, because no one can afford a tombstone for a duck. And then he just was like, wow, that's sad. And then he mourned. And then one day he was like, you know what? I miss whistles. I miss playing with whistles. I miss seeing whistles. I miss hearing whistle try to quack. And so he decided to go in his garage and find a shovel and dig up whistles and then bring whistles back into the house. Yeah. We all cringe because it's like, that's gross. And then you're probably like, I'm going to get an email this week. That was a gross... Illustration, but that is that is exactly what we do. And here's the thing: we can actually, I can like sympathize with that because I was like, man, whistles. I mean, he had a, a love for whistles, affection for whistles. We can empathize with that. We know what it's like. Many of us what it feels like to lose a pet. And so we were like, okay, I could kind of understand. It's gross, it's strange, but I could kind of understand. But see, here's the thing. When it comes to our sin, when we return to our old sinful habits, the ones that Jesus has broken the chains of, it's like we're going into the backyard and digging up our dead sin and we're bringing it back into our life and we're playing with it and we're petting it and we're acting as though it's a part of of our lives. And here's the difference, right? Whistles, we can understand Jason's affection for whistles, but the very things that we dig up as Christians again and bring back into our lives are not things we're supposed to love anymore. They're things we're supposed to hate. And so I, I believe this with all my heart. The Spirit of God wants to move in such a way in your mind to transform your mind so that you remember how foolish it is to dig up your sins and to start playing with them again. All of us have done it. But here's the thing, those, de- those are dead pet sins. Right, we always, Sometimes people say, oh, I have a pet sin, I, I just can't overcome it. No, no, listen, those are dead pet sins and when you play with them, you're bringing back the dead. I believe the Holy Spirit moves in our lives to, to bring transformation in one other way in our minds, right? The Spirit of God reveals how foolish it is of us to submit to an old master. You know, so when I lived in Medina, there was a movie theater in Medina behind the Target, if you've ever been to Medina. We, I, he's probably been to Medina. He's my man up front here. Um, he goes to Claggett. I went to middle school at Claggett, and so it's pretty cool. Uh, shout out for you, buddy. Um, but, but in Madonna, I worked at her movie theater, and there was a, it was a 16 mega movie theater behind Target. And I got a job there towards the end of high school, and I had a boss. Her name was Sue Garish. She was awesome. But I want you to imagine for a moment, I'm 30 plus now, I wanted to go see the new Top Gun movie when it comes out. I don't know when that is. It's been like they're, gonna, they're like, it's going to come out sometime in the future. Um, but I just want you to imagine I go see that, right, and I take, I wouldn't take my family, just my wife, because my kids can't watch that, um, so we go see Top Gun at Medina, and I walk in the door, and there's Sue, and I say hi to her, and she, she just, admit, she would never do this, because she's very kind, but she just looks at me, and she says, Steven, what are you doing, and I'm like, Okay, I'm a little caught off guard. She says, get behind those counters. Start sweeping up that popcorn. Wipe down that formica. You better clean that off. Get the degreaser out. Pop that popcorn. Sell those popcorn bags. I'll be like, what are you talking about? I'm here to see a movie. I don't work here anymore. I work at Grace Bible Church in Akron. You're not my boss anymore. You can't tell me what to do. Now, I wouldn't respond that way either because we have a good relationship. But you see what I'm saying? We do that with our sins. We, we, we have, it's like we act like we're still, the sin is still our boss. We don't have them as a boss anymore. Jesus is our boss now. When our sin tries to tell us what to do, when our sin tries to make us submit, we can say, no, you're not the boss of me. I'm free from you. I don't work here anymore. That's the kind of thing the Spirit can do in your life. It gives you a recognition that you are are more powerful than that temptation. You're more powerful than it. But see, the, the Spirit of God does not just get rid of foolish thinking. The Spirit of God also gives us a fresh way of thinking so we can do the last thing, and that is form new habits. We can form new habits. See, again, once the Spirit of God reveals to us that it's foolish to dig up the dead... Once the Spirit of God reminds us we're no longer slaves to our sin, and once the Spirit of God gives us a fresh perspective through God's Word, right? You get that perspective through God's Word, then we can begin to form new habits that reflect the character of Christ Jesus. Right, Ephesians 4 24, again, to read that again, it says this Put on, that's the command, put on the new self. Created to be like Christ in true righteousness and holiness. That phrase, that, that command, put on the new self. Uh, the way I like to contextualize or read that today is form new Christ-like habits. Right? You got rid of your old way of thinking, your old way of living. Now form new Christ-like habits. Right? Develop habits of loving other people. Develop the habit of telling the truth. Develop the habit of serving one another. Develop the habit of reading God's word. Develop the habit of praying to God when we're in crisis. And not just when we're in crisis, when other people are in crisis or just to praise him. Develop the habit of obeying God and surrendering to God. That is how you put on the new self. And here's the thing. When you change your habits and they become actually habitual, then you change your character. Rick Warren says this, I agree with it 100%. Character is basically the sum of our habits. The way we habitually live is what makes up our character. Now, now don't misunderstand me. This is not self-help. You can't do it, because if you leave here today and you heard me say, well, salvation is all about me changing the way I live. There's some truth to that. But here's how it would be false. If you left here today and you just decided, I'm going to be a different person, all in my own strength, that's not going to work. But if you remember, as Philippians says, that it is God that is in you, causing you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and he gives you both the desire and the determination to change, then it's God working through you, and then, yes, you will be transformed. That's the key. The power comes from God. And see, when we do that, then and only then will we share in Christ's character. And yes, we'll never do this perfectly. That's why we have that encounter with Jesus when we see him face to face and we're totally changed. Right? Perfection is not the goal. Transformation is the goal. And that's what God wants to work out in our lives right now. But in order to do that, we have to have the power of the Holy Spirit working in us so we can best represent him.